mutual aid was shown to be as much or more of a factor in the success of various species than competition for limited mentality resources. And what we are seeing in this pandemic is that we need each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Super Givers podcast. I've taken quite a break, I understand, unintentionally through adjusting to what is now month seven of living in a state-restricted world, and intentionally in a big move my family made this summer. So I'm now coming to you from Sunny Bend, Oregon. Woohoo! We have to uplift each other. And we've had this idea of rugged individuality in our, this country for so long that the pandemic is showing us that we need each other and that we do, in fact, affect each other every day. Today, I'm really honored to spend some time with someone I consider an inspiration, a mentor of mine, and a being who is truly evolving the potential of human leadership. I'm talking about author, equine-facilitated learning instructor, and founder of EponaQuest Worldwide, Linda Kahanoff. Not only will we be getting more into the concept of mutual aid and the opportunities that the world is giving us to understand it more effectively, we'll also discuss the concept of non-predatory power and how herbivorous herd animals like horses may have more to teach us about ourselves than we ever thought. This is where we explore the concept of human service, leadership, and social innovation. This is the Super Givers Podcast. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited today to get to talk with you, Linda. Um, for anyone listening who's not familiar with Linda's work, I was introduced to you, through, as many people probably were, through your beautiful writing, uh, initially the Tao of Equus and others. Now Power of the Herd is, is sort of like an instruction guide for me on leadership and life. But a very popular author and what some people consider to be one of the founding people in the equine facilitated learning field and someone I'm lucky enough to call one of my teachers currently. So thank you so much for, for being here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Jesse. And soon you're going to graduate from our apprenticeship program and then I can call you a colleague. A colleague. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. I want to traverse this, this area, given the context of what's happening um, socially and in the world today. A lot of your work is around power and leadership and you've come up with all these really cool ideas. So I was really curious this morning, I was thinking, when did you first get really curious about the concept of power? My orientation is to be a little more collaborative and um, somewhat nurturing and more of a visionary. My orientation is more toward ideas and moving toward them together in collaboration with others. But I had a stallion that I adopted rescued. He had been abused, but he had amazing bloodlines. He was this gorgeous black Arabian stallion. And I had a black Arabian mare. Stallion's name was Midnight Merlin or Merlin. And he had been abused through conventional dominance submission training techniques. So a lot of horses will submit and become more compliant. But there are some horses, particularly ones who are highly sensitive and naturally dominant, like Merlin was, who will actually go more increasingly more toward fight rather than flight or submission. And so Merlin had been abandoned at a Tucson boarding stable and I came across him and I thought that I would rehabilitate him through kindness, sympathy and understanding and massages and gentle training techniques. But the problem was is that I had to be powerful to stand up to his constant effort to 
at the most extreme, threatened my life. And I mean, he really did threaten my life a few times. And I realized that to work with him, that I had to be powerful. And that, that power meant standing up for myself, but it had to be power with incredible compassion and self-control because people who would just um, go into flight or fight mode based on one of Merlin's attacks would then become abusive and make the whole situation worse. So I learned how to be powerful, but in a very controlled way, I learned how to stand up to intense aggression with a feeling of compassion, but also accountability for him to learn what was appropriate. So what I had to do was learn how to become powerful myself in order to socialize a form of power that was completely out of control and extremely dangerous, not just for those interacting with Merlin, but actually for Merlin, because he was one step away of being destroyed by being considered too dangerous. Wow. So it was an act of compassion, not only for yourself, but especially for this being who almost couldn't, couldn't regulate himself and didn't know how to do relationship in this way? Truly. A lot of stallions in the United States especially are weaned very early, like way too early, um, from being able to be regulated and taught socialization skills by responsible adult horses. Um, So they are often separated from their parents very early. They usually never meet their fathers. And then they're often isolated. And so they don't develop any social skills other than coming out and being ordered around by a human and then mating. And so Merlin had no self-control. He had no relationship skills. And yet he was incredibly lonely and yearning for connection because horses are herd animals and they can't reach their true potential or become more centered and capable of functioning thoughtfully in the world unless they are in safe, nurturing relationships with others. Yeah, as you're saying that, I'm just I'm just imagining the... What will what will introduce more in a second uh, the non predatory part of humanity, and the part of us that feels so good being in herds. Like yes, you, you, you really so like you you're gonna extrapolate that into the work you've done with humans. I know, but um, I just that part of that part of me really calls to what we need as people. Definitely, um, a lot of times the biggest stresses in our lives come from interpersonal interactions. Um, We have trouble with different personalities at work, and then we have trouble with different family members, interpersonal difficulties. And a lot of us just simply don't know what to do about these situations because for some reason, we're supposed to accidentally learn how to function in terms of relationships and power and leadership. And there are a lot of power plays at work. There are a lot of power plays at home. And a lot of these power plays aren't even recognized as power plays because they are passive aggressive moves that people engage with each other, guilt tripping each other, Um, intimidating each other would be more overt, Um, using sarcasm and demeaning others. And none of these things helps you to excel in relationship, let alone in life. Yeah, it's sort of like these unconscious, socially conditioned power over techniques. 
Yeah, or or power going underground because you're you want to seem like a nice person, but you're actually doing lots of passive aggressive moves um, in order to gain influence. And I often let people know that if you if you want to think of power in terms of a functional aspect of it, is power is simply the desire and impulse to influence a situation or influence others. So if you want to stand up and be heard in the family or you want to stand up and be heard at work, you want your ideas to be heard without having other people, you know, run over you. And you want to be able to set boundaries with people who are stepping into your space or not letting you speak. They're interrupting you. Um, all of these things involve having some influence, which is just another word for having some level of power. Yeah. Right. And so then that ties back into your big aha moment with Merlin around like boundaries. And can you just, yeah, kind of briefly summarize what was the turning point with him? The turning point was actually um, understanding how to convey to him a sense of mutual respect, which he had never experienced before, which many horses don't experience. And actually, a lot of people have this difficulty in life, too. Um, in, in conventional horse training, um, the horse is, a well-trained horse is supposed to submit to the trainer and let the trainer touch them anywhere, anytime, for any reason, even if it's uncomfortable for the horse or overstimulating for the horse. So the horse never has a say. Um, and it actually causes physiological stress that gets acted out in misbehavior. And in the case of a horse, dangerous misbehavior having a thousand pound being go into flight or fight mode often is related to um, just simple boundary violations, um, touching a horse too soon in too um, stimulating um, of a place. You know, some horses are very relaxed by touch and some horses are um, dysregulated or hyperstimulated by touch. And you have to look at each horse as an individual and you have to be able to engage in mutual respect, which means when I'm approaching the horse and asking the horse to do something or touching the horse, then the horse should have some say in how fast I move in and where what's happening. You know, so that when I'm approaching the horse, the horse gets to set the boundaries. But when the horse is approaching me, I must set the boundaries for my own safety. So a lot of times, horse people have had bad experiences where they've overstepped the line with horses and the horse acts out as a result, and then they punish the horse. Um, And then you'll see others at the opposite end of the spectrum who don't want to be violent toward horses. So they'll they'll let those horses walk all over them. And that creates a very dangerous situation with a lot of horses. If you let a horse walk all over you, some of them will become more and more and more aggressive. So when you have this mutual respect rule, in other words, when I'm approaching the horse, the horse sets the boundaries. When the horse is approaching me, I'm absolutely committed to setting the boundary. Then you get this place where you realize that a boundary is not a wall. It's simply the space each individual needs to to feel safe, respected, and therefore connected. The boundary is really what you need in order to feel like you can really safely connect with somebody else. And so just simply understanding that and being able to convey that to Merlin turned everything around. And I've since, it's the first thing I teach um, when people come out to do 
equine facilitated leadership work or um, experiential learning um, in terms of parenting or relationships or personal development. We really look at how do we create mutual respect in our relationships. And a lot of the cues associated with somebody needing to set a boundary are nonverbal because horses certainly aren't speaking, but they're, they're showing body language, signs of stress, signs of relaxation, signs of connection. But for a lot of people, they do not understand what a boundary is, let alone that they need to set one. And so you can start to translate some of these nonverbal cues into watching the people you're interacting with and understanding also some nonverbal protocols that have a that show a person's un, subconscious body basically that you are listening by and you, that you are safe and that you can also stand your ground and, and you're not to be disrespected. Yeah. Well you said so much there. I want to I don't bring it full circle for a second. And what was the what was the moment where you realized you had established mutual respect with Merlin? You know, I tried all kinds of different training techniques and, and, you know, massage and body work techniques. The problem is that Merlin had been stressed and even abused through conventional equestrian training techniques, whether they were regular riding or whether they were considered natural horsemanship techniques. So those techniques would send him into some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder response unpredictably. And yet Merlin also could not stand to be touched. So I couldn't use massage. I couldn't use acupuncture. I couldn't use any conventional body work. Um, so what am I going to do? I, I couldn't go in on either direction. And so what I did is I took it down to the most basic element, which was to find out how far can I stand from Merlin without him running off or trying to attack me. Um, and it turned out to be about five feet away from his body. And so I thought I would just stand in that spot. And then day by day, inch by inch, I would go in and I would take a step closer and a step closer and a step closer. And um, finally, I would be touching him maybe like seven days later. The problem was, is that every day I would go into his corral and I would stand in this exact same spot about five feet away from his body. And if I even leaned in, he would show the initial signs of stress that would lead to flight or fight. In other words, he, his neck would tense and his ears would go back. And if I leaned back in that spot, he would relax and then he would look at me. And then I realized that it also helped to use um, a breathing technique that we now call rock back and sigh. And that's something that's very hard to teach over an interview with words. Um, but it turned out that I could actually regulate his nervous system through this breathing technique at a distance of five feet. I could also do it farther away. Anytime I saw some kind of stress reaction in the horse, even if it was 20 feet away as I was approaching him, and I did this rock back and sigh, rock, rock back slightly, remain connected, but give a long audible out breath, mm. Merlin would relax and then it would be like a switch was tripped inside of his nervous system where his eyes would soften and he would look at me and then he would be motivated to come to me. Yet as he was motivated to come to me, I had to be able to set a boundary. Otherwise, he would have walked right up and grabbed my shirt or pushed me around. So that's where we started to interact with this idea of mutual respect. When I saw this proximity stress response in him, I rocked back and did this long audible outbreath, which we've since found out jump starts a part of the nervous system in mammals that um, actually causes them to feel safety and it actually causes them 
to slip into and be open for connection. Um, that's part of the polyvagal theory of the nervous system. But by doing this sort of dance where I respected him when I was approaching him, and then when he was coming to me, I made sure I set a boundary and then relaxed inside and connected when he respected that boundary. That was the first dance that was the basis of all the healing that subsequently happened. Beautiful. There's some obvious um, ramifications to this. You learn this about Merlin and you've created these concepts around the five roles of the master herder. Uh, and now you're saying, wow, there's a great big world of humans out there who could benefit from this. So I wonder if you could just kind of share a little bit about what you've seen and, and how those roles play into your work with people. Well, most of my motivation for writing books after interacting with horses was to share what I learned from working with horses that was immediately applicable to human to human situations or situations between humans and other animals even, um, mm -hmm. as well as to help people who have horses to have more productive relationships. But um, first of all, this idea of mutual respect and paying attention to the nonverbal cues of stress and relaxation in others, and also the body language you have to have to be able to convey that you can stand your ground, but also connect at the same time. These are nonverbal things that you can learn accidentally sometimes working with a horse. Some people learn this, but they have trouble generalizing it to human relationships. When we break these techniques down and we make them accessible to people through practice, um, and often it's most effective through them coming out and practicing some of these things with much gentler horses with, than Merlin, by the way, um, then people can take this back to the human world. So when you can stand up to a thousand pound animal who, again, we would not ever put a regular client in with a horse as extreme as Merlin, just a little bit more gentle horse. But when you can set boundaries with a thousand pound animal and also convey that that's about um, mutual respect and connection, and you can shift your body language in these ways, um, you can actually, you know, standing up to a 150 pound person at work or at home is kind of a joke after that. It's, it, it gets so much in your body and you've had the experience of doing it with so many ways, a thousand pounds. And then a lot of times people will shift in their relationship with you and they will, they won't understand what it is that has changed because primarily you're engaging nonverbal principles that become very conscious in you. It's just that others won't be conscious of them. And I suppose you could misuse some of this, um, nonverbal conscious wisdom um, if you didn't have the integrity to use it to build and enhance relationships. So we're always really cautious that we're letting people know that, you know, these techniques are supposed to build and enhance relationship rather than to gain power over somebody. Yeah, well, and I think that dovetails beautifully into your concept of non-predatory power. Versus, versus predatory power as, as you, I think one of the things I, I really came alive to in um, reading your work was around this concept of post-conquest mindset. Is that yes. sort of like the human understanding? Can you, can you share a little bit about how that, how you came to see what that is and how that, how that came to inform you about people and um, how we orient to power? One of the things that humans do unconsciously in this day and age is 
over-identify with predatory forms of power because we've grown up in a conquest-oriented culture. And so in a conquest-oriented culture, you don't have really respect for others' boundaries. Your idea is to come in and through an act of conquest, you know, take others' lands, enslave others, crush the competition in, in business and that sort of thing. So we have this long history of unconscious and a lot of times nonverbal social posturing that really is related to 5,000 years of humanity um, rewarding those who are most um, talented in this area to the point where a lot of people consider human beings to be predators. Human beings are actually omnivores. We have the teeth of a vegetarian. We have the digestive system that is more oriented toward vegetarianism. We have to cook our meat to eat it. Um, we have the eyes forward that's similar to the way you see commonly in predators. So we we have these sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde moments where we have both um, predatory and non-predatory aspects of ourselves. And I came up with the term non-predatory because the division a lot of times has been predator versus prey and talking about animals like horses as prey animals. Actually, horses are herbivores. They're large herbivores and they, they can sometimes be preyed upon, but they actually have a remarkable capacity to stand up to predators. And so predators will very rarely attack a large animal like a horse um, when that animal is in its prime and especially in a group. And so when I was, uh, for a long time, I, I was talking about, you know, the wisdom of the prey because everybody was talking about horses as prey animals. But then I began to see, and you can see numerous videos on the internet of large herbivores successfully, not just fighting off together a lion or a group of lions, but they can actually, um, they've actually, they actually will perform altruistic acts to rescue a herd member from an entire group of, of lions. So when I began to really look at this and think about it, I realized that there are really two forms of power. It makes no sense to talk about prey power um, because prey implies victim. And when we have predator and prey, there's only those who are aggressors, aggressors and those who are victims. But there's actually in nature something completely different going on is that large herbivores use the power of the herd to stand up to predators, often very successfully. And so I thought, well, what, can I, what term could I come up with for that? And then I finally realized the only thing I could come up with was non-predatory power, and it's similar to the idea of nonviolence, you know, so we often think of the opposite of violence as peace, but that doesn't really fit when you talk about going into situations where there are aggressors, where you're going to demonstrate, you're going to be a social activist, you're going to stand up for people who are victimized. That's not that you're going to go and be peaceful. You actually have to go in and use nonviolent techniques. And because we don't have a word for the opposite of violence that isn't peace. So similarly, we don't have a word that's the opposite of predator that doesn't imply victim. So I just picked non-predator um, to talk about large herbivores, but also to talk about a form of power that uh, all of us can learn how to wield. We can use predatory power when necessary, but for the most part, non-predatory forms of power are a lot more effective in bringing a team together, bringing a family together, 
um, getting people to work together for um, widespread social change. We need non-predatory forms of power and influence to stand up to those more aggressive members of our culture who are really victimizing others. And Linda, do you see some of that opportunity growing now amidst the the stress and the challenge that our species faces? Absolutely. I mean, I think now is the time where we need to have a more, much more sophisticated understanding of a form of power and influence and standing up for the rights of others and ourselves that is not predatory. Um, predatory power at its extreme end looks sociopathic. Um, so that you're only out for yourself, that you have no empathy for others, and that you know winning at all cost um, shows that you're successful. And our world has gotten to this point where we're in a lot of trouble with the earth, with the pandemic, with large numbers of people um, suffering and small numbers of people benefiting. We need to learn a new way of engaging with each other. And it turns out that in nature, you know, this, this non-predatory power does exist and that even, you know, predators will engage in non-predatory forms of power with their own family members or pack members. So even predators in nature can engage in non-predatory forms of power. And if we begin to use this consciously and teach it to each other consciously, I think the world can't help but change and become more balanced and caring and empowered and empathetic. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, I, I was wondering if you see in the, in the framework of, you know, being in a pandemic shelter at home, which most of us are currently, this is April 24th of 2020. What are the opportunities for people to start to integrate some non-predatory power for themselves? Well, I think a lot of us have time to explore it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that that uh, we do with the, the people who've gone through my, my program is that we actually understand the difference between predatory and non-predatory power. And we also understand how to engage five roles of power and social influence um, that I... I wrote about in my book, The Five Roles of a Master Herder. And um, this brings in a, a very methodical way of understanding the differences between these roles, why the average adult needs to use all five of them, why the average adult or child needs to understand the difference between predatory power and non-predatory power and when to use either one. And these things can be learned to a certain extent um, over the internet. So I've been inviting you and other instructors to do some sessions where these days, you know, with applications like, like Zoom, we can actually um, share the, the, the PowerPoints that we've created to distinguish these um, various skills. We can share that remotely. And then over time, when people are allowed to get out and come back to the farm again, they can come out and begin to do some sessions with the horses to, to really get it in their body. But understanding the, these concepts is actually at hand right now with a lot of tools that we have that can be done remotely. So what do you say to people who might be interpreting this or misinterpreting this to sound passive? And, and that all they know is that 
I don't know any other way to stand up to predatory power except to come back over the top with a, uh, a louder form of it. Well, that's what makes a lot of people abdicate power is that they don't, they, it doesn't feel right to them. And if somebody's like hyper oriented to the predatory role, and there are people out in the world who are more oriented toward that role than, than other people. Some people are more gentle and more collaborative or more nurturing. Um, you know, you would have to, to betray the essence of your soul to stand up to a person using predatory power by trying to get more predatory than that person. And so that's why you see a lot of people abdicating power and um, actually feeling um, depressed or overly passive as a result. But that's why the horses are so amazing as a model is that they are not predators and they can stand up to predators. and they don't engage, um, they have a self-control about it where they stop fighting when the aggressor steps back. Um, They don't go in for the kill, but they're perfectly capable of standing together for each other and then going back to grazing, back to enjoying life. And so we can can have the horse as a model of an animal that's highly protective and successful in life um, and lives in the midst of predators and uses the herd also to, in, in herds, you usually have one or two horses standing back and sort of observing what's going on in the environment. We would call these horses as horses that are acting in the sentinel role. They're sort of acting as guardians. And horses in herds in the wild will trade this role and because they live among predators. So you can see a lot of pictures on the internet now of, in Africa, large herds of zebras you know, grazing um, 20 feet away from two or three lions lying in the grass. So it isn't about killing all the predators. That would be a problem in nature. That would create an imbalance where all the herbivores would then die of starvation because there was no balance. But they live among predators and they understand when the predator's on the prowl and they can alert the herd and the herd can stand together to address that situation. And then they go back to grazing. So one of the things that was very inspiring to me is that I do in conjunction with um, mental health professionals, um, including Dr. Rebecca Bailey, who's very well known um, for her work with J.C. Dugard, who was kidnapped for 18 years and then was rescued. And Dr. Bailey worked with J.C. um, And I've since had the pleasure of knowing and working with J.C. And um, with someone like J.C. who has experienced literally um, years of torture at the hands of a a true sociopathic predator, for her to come back and others like her to come back into the world and step into life as parents and social activists and people who are trying to influence the criminal justice system, they have to be able to use some aspect of power. But if their only concept of power is related to predators, they're going to turn that opportunity down or it's not going to feel right to them. So the idea of them learning non-predatory power and learning how to stand together to the out-of-control predators in our world is very inspiring to them. And that's actually how I met Dr. Bailey was when she, um, when she saw my book, The Power of the Herd, which is subtitled A Non-Predatory Approach to Social Intelligence, Leadership, and Innovation. She really liked the idea of non-predatory power 
because that's where somebody who's been victimized can be themselves, be their empathetic, caring self, but also develop the skills to stand up to the aggressors in our society in the best, most effective possible way. Yeah. And some people are, I've been listening to a lot of kind of thought, intellectual thought people around this pandemic. And there's an interesting there's an interesting idea that this is really an opportunity to transform so many ways, so many things about the way we orient to reality and the way that we organize our realities socially um, and the way we conceptualize our reality. It also feels like a little, a little bit of a fragile tipping point where a lot of like power could go a lot of different directions. And I get really curious about this, you say 5,000 years of post-conquest conditioning. Uh, certainly we have tons of evidence of that, right? What is the opportunity of where we could transform to as a human species amidst, amidst what feels like a really you know, accelerating time? There's just so many very simple skills that people can learn to do something different than their normal knee-jerk reaction going into a flight or fight mode over any kind of stress. Whether that stress is related to literally feeling like your survival is threatened. Um, And the pandemic is, you know, literally challenging survival, you know. So it's natural to go into a feeling of of flight or fight. Um, But also there are ways that we can learn how to center ourselves and how to regulate our own nervous systems and how to co-regulate the nervous systems of others. And um, a lot of these techniques are, are simple things that can be learned over, over the internet um, through different kinds of call, calls or Zoom meetings and things like this with instructors who understand these skills um, so that we can practice these skills um, during the pandemic. I mean, I... I seem to have had the coronavirus for three weeks and um, I'm just getting over it now. And finally, I'm starting to feel well again. But I, I think that many of these techniques of self-regulation and, and learning how to use my nervous system to, to calm a thousand pound animal like Merlin, um, my nervous system and my cardiovascular system has learned how to shift from flight or fight mode into a place that's more centered and regulated. Um, And by doing that, I was able to, I think that's part of the reason why I didn't end up in the hospital over this thing. Um, So these things that you can learn, these are breathing techniques. Um, There's one that you can actually see on a video on YouTube um, where I'm actually doing this heart breathing technique with a horse. And um, I do explain a little bit of it in the video, and I use that technique to, in order, shifting my breathing in such a way that I call a horse over to me, who's actually one of Merlin's sons, by not moving my body and not saying anything, simply changing my breathing in a really effective, connecting way that's attractive and helps the horse to regulate his nervous system and want to be next to me because I'm capable of helping him feel more centered. So that might be a link you would like to um, include with this, which is you know, simply a video on YouTube of me introducing the idea of heart breathing with a horse to, to a group of people. Right, with Indigo Moon, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. Yeah, well, and wonder if you've gone so far as to envision 
what it looks like to have a human species that's at least moving towards that level of consciousness and practice. I think this is what we were designed to do all along. We just have to learn how to, um, we have to learn some skills that are different from the unconscious ways that the conquest-oriented culture we grew up in recommends that we interact in the world. And there's a lot of things that are very easy to learn, but they're actually counterintuitive or counterinstinctual. Mm. So when you're going into a flight or fight mode, your body starts to breathe in a really shallow way and you begin to disconnect from others and just focus on either getting away or fighting. And when you feel the initial hit of the flight or fight mode taking over your nervous system, by doing this type of breathing that's uh, related to the heart breathing that I show in this video that can move a horse, um, if you can do that, you can shift your nervous system out of a flight or fight mode into an optimal state of a kind of um, centered, relaxed alertness where you can think more clearly and creatively and also be able to more effectively connect with someone else who's going into a flight or fight mode and then shift the whole thing into a more productive direction. So it's these, some of these techniques are extremely simple, but they take practice so that you remember to use them when you get overstimulated. Whether you're at home alone worrying about the future or whether you're interacting with somebody who's panicking or whether you're sitting next to a, you know, somebody who's panicking on a plane, which actually we're not likely to do for a little while. Hmm. Um, you can use these nonverbal techniques to shift interactions in a more productive direction. And once we know how to do that, then the sky's the limit about what we're capable of. Yeah. Because as, as I think you and I both believe we're not actually hardwired for conquering. We're, we maybe have conditioned ourselves because I can imagine people in really harsh times, uh, our nervous systems, without that development and modeling, we just de devolve into sympathetic response. And we've sort of like conditioned ourselves over generations to, to make that fight or flight response sort of more like option number one. And so I like that you bring in the idea of, you know, working out of more of a, a grounded parasympathetic ventral vagal response, I guess we're saying, right? Where we're, we're more wired for connection and safety. And that's more of who we are as a people. But I like also that you, you talked about this last time I was in Arizona, that we have to develop a capacity for vulnerability. And does that play into this as well in terms of species progress? Well, it helps to um, have a capacity to feel vulnerable without going into a flight or fight mode. Right. So what I call that is um, a, t a series of techniques for developing a high tolerance for vulnerability. And um, what happens is a lot of times when people feel vulnerable, they immediately go into a flight or fight mode. Right. But you can actually learn how to be in a situation where you are vulnerable. Um, and by this, I mean vulnerability can also just be simply stepping into the unknown, stepping out of your comfort zone. And we're all being forced to step out of our comfort zone. Um, we're all, whenever, anytime you have to design something new, anytime you have to shift out of an old habit, you feel this sense of vulnerability. 
one person described it to me as a feeling of an egg cracked out of its shell, quivering on the sidewalk. It's like your hard shell of habits is cracking open and inside you realize, woo, I'm all kind of soft and, and gel-like and hmm. I don't know if I can contain this. And, and so if you can develop a, a high tolerance for that, that um, egg yolk feeling and think in the midst of it and then be, to begin to develop a wider sort of softer, more, more adaptive shell. Um, it's not like we want to crack the egg open completely and just leave it sizzling on the sidewalk in the sun. Right. We want to be able to let, have the egg shell to be able to be softer and more expansive. And um, to do that, we have to be able to feel some level of that, that sort of, soft gel-like substance but that's the part that can create something new that's the nourishing part inside of the egg that's the mm. part that creates the chick that comes out into a new stage of life and um so we need to be able to feel vulnerable and not and avoid going into a knee-jerk fight or flight mode where we might hurt ourselves or others or just try to run back into the shell and and patch the shell and recreate it so as we're coming out of this pandemic and learning how to create the world in a new way, a lot of people are going to feel very vulnerable. And if while we're in this um, state of um, quarantine, we can begin to exercise ways of developing a higher tolerance for vulnerability, then we'll be able to think clearly and collaborate and to look at new ways of being and be able to confidently step into the new way of being rather than trying to just rush back into the old way of being. Yes. You're here. <laughs> so if you're willing and if you think anything applies, what is one thing someone listening at home could do to start building their tolerance for vulnerability today? Well, I do have a, a sequence in the book, The Power of the Herd. Um, there's a whole chapter on developing a high tolerance for vulnerability. There's a, there's a way that you can, and it, it would help, you know, um, with, with uh, some of your clients that you coach to go through that process with them or to have people um, reach out and go through this process with another OponaQuest instructor who's been taught the power of the herd, how to coach people in that power of the herd guiding principles. But it really is like, it's, it's like strength training for your emotional muscles. So you can think of it as... And it's more like isometric muscle control to have a high tolerance for vulnerability. So rather than doing reps, this is more like holding a weight, you know, and you know how you hold a weight and then your muscles start to shake and then finally you can't hold it anymore and you drop it to the ground. So developing a high tolerance for vulnerability is like, can you stay in a situation where you feel vulnerable? How long can you stay there and, and think clearly and be curious about what's happening before you feel like you want to run away or you want to disconnect or you want to eat an entire chocolate cake or you want to fight or you want to pick a fight with somebody at a bar or whatever, you know, all of those reactive modes are things that happen when you're kind of dropping the weight, when you can't stand the feeling of vulnerability anymore. But you can think of yourself as your own emotional strength trainer. You're just going to find out where you're at now and then you're going to um, – strive to stay longer and stay thoughtful just a little bit longer the next time you feel vulnerable. You're not going to try to do it all at once. Just like if you came to be, um, if you came, to, if I was your personal weight trainer, I would start you off and have you hold a, 
you know, a 20 pound weight and I would time how long you can hold it. And I wouldn't say, wow, you're pretty unevolved. You could only hold that for 20 seconds. I would just say, oh, that's your starting point. 20 seconds. Great. Next time, let's try for 30 seconds. So you can develop this tolerance in the same methodical way without judgment for yourself or others. Just think of it as emotional strength training. I, I love the menu you gave. And, and I, the concept I'd like to tell myself sometimes is, is stay one breath beyond. Then like if I'm at home in quarantine and I've got, you know, this, this five-year-old and sometimes the stimulation gets too much for me. I'm really sensitive to a lot of sound and, and sporadic sound. And we have this little dog and he'll bark. And when I'm conscious of it, which is not nearly all the time, I will try to give myself this mantra for vulnerability capacity, which is go one more breath and stay curious and open and see what happens. And then you can get your phone or eat your chips or whatever the the stress checkout is. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> which, which ultimately- I like that. That's a really beautiful yeah. way to, to offer that. Just one breath longer, just one breath. And if, and if you learn the, um, the coherent breathing technique that brings you into that state of relaxed alertness, that heart breathing, those breaths end up being more productive themselves in shifting your nervous system to let you stay even longer. So these skills are, are pretty simple, but you're unlikely to stumble upon them on your own in life. Um, otherwise, we'd all know them by now. Yeah. Are you offering anything right now over Zoom that people can connect to for some of this basic stuff? Um, well, I'm getting ready to, once I learn the Zoom <laughs> format, which I'm, I'm a little technically challenged, um, and I think there are a few other formats. I, I will be doing some Zoom private sessions as well as some um, webinars on some of these techniques. And I also am working toward um, creating an online course that involves some video of what it looks like with the horses to, for instance, approach the horse, see the proximity response, rock back and sigh. And then what does it look like when we're doing that with humans? And why physiologically is that so influential? Um, and yeah. so during my time at home during this pandemic, I'm actually feel like I have a lot of work to do <laughs> to, um, be able to reach out to people remotely as a rule, because I think that's part of what may be changing as we move forward, which is, um, maybe more, more learning online in effective ways. And then smaller groups of people getting together, um, for work with the horses. And I'm really excited that this is a grand time for it in terms of the development of my business, EponaQuest Worldwide, because now we have over 300 instructors throughout the world, and you're one of them, um, so that we could do some perhaps online learning um, in a format that I'm leading. And then you can also then you would have an, uh, a, an activity or experience you can have by going to an OponaQuest instructor in your area to have the horse experience. Yeah. And um, so that's all on the agenda for the next few weeks as I'm trying to learn the technology to get it started. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so if you want to learn about Linda's work, OponaQuest worldwide. We'll, we'll have the, the link in the notes. Is there anywhere else you would, I, I like masterherder.com as well for the yes. leadership specific stuff. Is there anywhere else um, people should look if they want to learn about your work? Um, no, those are the two best places, eponaquest.com, which you'll have on there and masterherder.com. Um, and 
one of the things that I do have time to do now um, that I'm not traveling and doing larger events in the near future is that I do have the opportunity to do private sessions with people. So, hmm. and I know that, that you have that, they have that opportunity with you as well. So, um, but if they want to look, look at working with me privately, um, just go to oponaquest.com or masterherder.com and um, we'll be able to set that up. Yeah. What a, what a rare opportunity. Yeah. And I highly recommend if any of these concepts sound interesting to you, Highly recommend you uh, check out Linda's books. You have five in rotation, or six counting Way of the Horse. Um, no, that's one of five. Five, yeah, yeah. five in rotation. Um, we've talked a lot today. The concepts we've talked about are in Power of the Herd. Um, also, Dow of Equus, you know, gives an amazingly beautiful backdrop to the kind of the spiritual awakening you had. I think. Is that fair to say in, in yes, discovering this yes. work? Highly recommend you check out those books. It's a beautiful way to support Linda and her work. And yeah, Linda, just thank you so much for being willing to come on and share your perspective. It's an awakening of interdependence, hopefully. Definitely. That's a beautiful way to put it. <laughs> great. Well, thanks for all the great work you're doing in the world. Thank you, Jesse, for all the great work you're doing and for this really fun interview. Find out more about Linda's work at oponaquest.com and masterherder.com. This has been the Supergivers Podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. If you like what you're hearing and would like to support the show, you can do so with one of three simple actions. You can write a five-star review on iTunes, you can tell a friend about the show, or you can subscribe and listen to another episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening.